0: This is the fourth and last in our series on the extended clerical drama, political revolution, and ultimately nation-destroying conflict that was the Reformation. Five centuries now of hindsight, five centuries that scholars like Richard Rohr call an entire epoch in Christianity, Time for a reinvention. But so many of the things that 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 he mentioned in that excellent passage are the very themes that we have been hammering over the last four weeks, well, five weeks, because we took a break in there. And in fact, specifically, the list of care of traits that Richard Rohr described as being part of this new, brilliant vision, 21st century Christianity. To those of us in the Anabaptist faith, sound about five centuries old. Today, I want to talk about what influence, if any, our story has had on this world that we have encountered so ambiguously. This world that has embraced us and injected us. This world where we have thrived and been persecuted. The first sermon was on baptism, what it meant, why it mattered. And then some of the things that we as a community learned through the experience of placing so much importance on baptism, on how it's described in Scripture, and suffering the consequences for having a countercultural divergent opinion. The next, we focused on violence, on how the question of violence posed itself in the most vivid way possible in the early Anabaptist community, as essentially half the community voted for violence as a tool to bring about their liberation and their freedom to practice faith as shown in the New Testament. And the other half, perhaps more, it's hard to say when the majority may well have been mostly silent, said that in order to be faithful and walk with the New Testament, by definition, one must reject violence. And that question played itself out. Some hard lessons were learned in that history. And then in the third, we talked about endurance. The way the community, after having weathered the firestorm of violence in Munster, has endured by forming tight-knit communities, by emphasizing simplicity and clarity and humility, and over time, by being willing to cut and run when things got bad. We're a small community, a quaint community in many people's lives. This is the first picture that comes up on a Google image search for Mennonites. (laughs) But this is one. This is somewhere on the first page and maybe much more true to what some of us have lived in our lives. Yet a group so small. With few tens of thousands of people, perhaps numbering in the hundreds of thousands worldwide, what do they matter? How can we claim that we have heard something of strength from Scripture and interpreted it rightly in the spirit if our fire has dwindled so much? And as was in Judy rightly introduced, what started off as an explosive conflagration very quickly became something rather small and quiet. Does our voice matter? Well, for starters, every starfish matters to God. I don't know if you know the parable, but the the parable goes that there's somebody walking down the beach after a, a hurricane and the surge has washed up millions of starfish on the beach. And one, the one person's walking down the beach and she's throwing starfishes back in the water. And the other person says, why are you doing that? You'll never make a difference. You'll never save even 1% of the starfish out here, even if you work for a week. And the person walking the beach says, matters to that one. Every starfish matters to God. And to say that our movement has not e- exploded and gone on to become one of the great global religious traditions does not mean that what we are doing is unimportant or misguided. Success is a very crude measure of truth, of goodness, of life. And also, in addition to that fact, I would like to contend this morning that when you look at the world in a slightly different way, instead of seeing the borders of Anabaptism constrained by those who call themselves Anabaptist, if you look at the world as a soup of ideas flowing through time, then I think we can argue with some credibility that the influence of Anabaptism has far exceeded the stretch of its name or the reach of those who explicitly identify with Anabaptist communities. When you look at the world in a different way, as Anabaptists so often have, you'd be surprised at the influence you can have, especially when that way is focusing on the sun, on Christ's love on the spark of joy and warmth and acceptance that all people crave, the things you see will attract human hearts around the world. When that's your focus, the ideas that you craft can very readily take off in other communities who otherwise wouldn't know you from anybody. It's not exactly invasion, which was my first title for this sermon, because it's not like Mennonites have gone out and systematically placed themselves so as to invade the world. And it's not exactly infiltration, although perhaps it has been that some ways as well, because it's been a relatively defined and tight knit community not being not being infiltrated. It turns out there is a word for this. It came to me last night and it has a number of interesting uses, none of them related to church. But I believe that our story over the last five centuries has been one of dramatic exfiltration. Exfiltration is used in three contexts, mostly uh, architecture, where you don't want to let the air that's inside the house get out. You're trying to prevent exfiltration. Military ops, where you've got someone inside a compound or building and you're trying to sneak them out. So, again, sort of the opposite of infiltration. And data security, where you're uh, trying to prevent viruses and programs from getting a hold of valuable data and then extracting it from the system, exfiltrating the data from the system. But I think that this is the only appropriate word to describe what I'm attempting to this morning. The process of Christ's vision and work as it has worked out in our community, which has weathered some of the most dramatic and extreme moments in history. And how that vision then, by the attraction it carries, by no virtue of ours, exfiltrates itself across the globe. What we learned from baptism, what we learned by this focus on scripture, rejection of governmental authorities, was that in order for this project of ours to have meaning, in order for Christ to dwell among us, in order for the greatest of goods to be seen and felt with the guidance of the Spirit, it requires an individual commitment as well as collective purpose. Two elements that seem so simple but turn out to be terribly hard to work out in practicality. Individual commitment to collective work. This idea of individual commitment was five centuries ago quite foreign. This is in many ways, we're, at that time, we're looking at the birth of individuality as we understand it in the Western mindset. The idea that I am a person who has free choice. That I can choose what I believe, not just inherit it. And, as we will see, That that is linked fundamentally to the freedom to choose what to believe. Historically, there have been many places that have have worked towards religious toleration of some form or another. Typically a dominant religion making a conscious decision to tolerate a minority in their midst. What we have today in our common now globally popular understanding is very different from his how toleration used to work. Where instead of a dominant religion explicitly naming and tolerating a specific sub community, now we have a blanket disengagement, a separation of church and state. Separation predicated on the fact that we are each individuals and nobody has the right to twist my arm and tell me what to believe. This separation of church and state did not appear on the world stage for hundreds of years after Mennonites and John Locke and all kinds of people who were happened to be hanging around the same town of Amsterdam were writing about it, talking about it, preaching about it. Its attempted implementation in this country, although flawed, remains a great, I believe, a great um, success in our national experiment that James Madison and Ronald Reagan, separated so much by politics and time, could nonetheless agree upon. But that second part, the the individual commitment that Mennonites, that Anabaptists paved in their understanding, has indeed become incredibly popular worldwide, and especially in this country. We're very individualist. That's that second part, I'm still waiting on some more exfiltration, my friends. The collective work remains elusive. This idea that we use our individual commitment in order to build what is now being called a missional community. You can see it there in the Schleitheim Confession, in the song that we sang just now, written by Menno Simons. 450 years ago, but whose hour has finally come. And I tell you, those words will be getting popular any minute now. Missional community is now a phrase on everyone's lips throughout American Christianity and perhaps global Christianity. But my access is not so strong. It's something that nearly every church would at least pay lip service to these days. And something that I think we as Anabaptist communities struggle with. But we are now struggling alongside other churches who understand their mission much the same way we do. To serve the, the poor. To clothe the naked. Feed the hungry. To have collective purpose that is grounded in real needs. And that spawns real love. These are some of the things that we learned in our experience with baptism. Things that have since that experience took place so many centuries ago become quite broadly impactful. We also learned a lot from our experience with violence. At Munster, those who lived by the sword did indeed die by the sword. And we haven't forgotten it. Second Corinthians 10 says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient obedient. To Christ. Nowadays, they call this soft power, cultural, cultural warfare. Argument, logic, whatever you use to describe duking it out with use your words, right? Duking it out with words instead of with blades. I submit to you that although most of Christianity, much less most of the world, does not, remains non-pacifist in its commitments, in its explicit statements, you will find Christian pacifism now, in this year, at a zenith it has not seen since perhaps the wake of the Civil War, when Americans were full of bloodshed, and had no patience for another conflict. This, despite the fact that we have not just bloodily waged combat on one another, brother against brother. And it is so common these days to find Christian leadership willing to express a peace stance in a way that they recognize their co- communities would, would not state so strongly. This, this process of exfiltration of the peace idea, of course, did not start with Anabaptism, but none of these did. Yet, our strong experience and witness has become a key part of moving the conversation such that now many Christians feel that they must justify why they are not pacifist. A fascinating turn and one whose future I think no one can predict. The gospel of peace has always had a difficult time catching wildfire in the wet wood at the heart of an empire. When you're living pretty in peace yourself because of violence done elsewhere, you tend to believe that that violence was necessary, was worth it. And yet, even in the heart of an empire, even against those headwinds of comfort and self-interest, yearly, the message of radical Christ-like peace appears to my eye to be gaining ground. Anabaptism is a smoldering coal. We're not the only ones who preach radical love, who try to live out a radically loving stance. We're not the only sources of God's light in this world. But even though we are small, we, along with every person who is a caregiver, a lover, a healer, we are slowly drying the tinder of this world with our heat and our light. And one day we believe that tinder will burst into flame, though we can't say when. One day the dynamics might reverse. And what seemed like a pie in the sky idealist stance that we could treat our enemies with compassion and forswear the use of violence to destroy them, allowing them to trust us, One day, what seems foolish will suddenly become obvious. And the dynamics of personal and political conflict will shift on a dime. As the world sees Christ afresh. And finally, we have learned much from our history of endurance. As. Mennonites experienced adversity in one place after another. They, they scattered themselves throughout the globe, first from Europe into Russia, then to the United States and Canada. Then, when especially the Canadians, wouldn't let them teach school in German anymore to Paraguay, Uruguay, Central South America. And alongside that have been efforts to reach out and embrace other cultures, other places without direct Mennonite roots such that now there are more Mennonites in sub-Saharan Africa than North America. Thank God. less The lessons of endurance have often come through as an understanding that we must rem- keep ourselves mobile, Nimble, simple, that by reducing our dependence on products and lifestyles in this world, we can, by living simply, we can give ourselves the flexibility we will need if suddenly things go bad and we need to pull up stakes and flee a conflict situation. It's a very practical thing to live simply. But it's also a very spiritual thing, one that I believe helps teach us the value of determination of work and that frees up our material resources to help others live simply so that others may simply live. Might have sounded radical 500 years ago, but these days it's a bumper sticker. We cannot claim at all properly to be the originators of these three lessons that have been so potent, such potent parts of the Mennonite Anabaptist community and which are now showing themselves to be increasingly popular throughout the world. We didn't invent them for the first time. In fact, in all three of these regards, each Christian community echoes the first one, the early church. But we did live through it again in a very potent way over the course of our Reformation history. And we have been, therefore, a source many people have turned to as they come to understand the importance of simplicity, the importance of of the witness of peace and the importance of individual commitment for group purpose. We see the world differently these days. Most people in the world see the world differently these days because of what happened in the Reformation. And even if they have never heard the word Mennonite, our experiences nonetheless will have touched them. From the ways that they entered the works of Tolstoy, the lives of people like Dr. King and Mahatmas Gandhi, and indirectly through every Hollywood movie that despite itself ends up preaching universal love in the face of oppression. We do not get to claim credit for our part. It appears from certain, at least if you look at take a certain look at Mennonite history, that we've done our best to prevent this exfiltration, built our tower as strong and secure as we possibly could. But thank heaven God wouldn't have any of it. And the beautiful lessons that we have learned have indeed the best of them spread to the rest of the world. There are some things that we learned and behaviors that we adopted that weren't so beautiful. And I thank God that they have not spread in the same way. Of course, there are also things that we didn't invent that we need to learn. Exfiltrations that God needs to bring to us. One of the. Components that Richard Rohr mentioned was creation care that 21st century Christianity has a much clearer vision of take of our role as caretakers of gardeners in Eden workers alongside Christ in building up life on this planet the way Christians clear cutting forests 200 years ago did not see it that one didn't come from us particularly strongly although perhaps you could say as committed farmers We have historically been quite closely tied to the land. There has not been much in Anabaptist Mennonite conversation about the respect owed to a squirrel. But we are coming around. We learn. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking that I believe that we came up with all the good ideas and now the rest of the world is just playing catch up. Not at all. But God did teach us some pretty good ideas through our hard experiences, through our striving with scripture, and through the spirit of love we felt with one another. And although other peoples in other times have also maybe learned those same lessons, the time that it happened to us, was in, er, was in Northern Europe at the beginning of the modern era. And so the impact of our story has been truly global as a result. Every time someone from Germany, France, England even, and other parts of Europe talks about what the right ro- relationship is between yourself as a person, a community of committed believers and a polity trying to organize itself as a government in order to spend money and get certain things done, that conversation invariably harkens back to Amsterdam circa 1520. It happened to be us that started that conversation in the Western world. And I think that that makes us an example of how God's subtle power can function. It should also serve to us as something of a warning. In so far as we interpret the world through Jesus' tinted glasses, in so far as we bring something truly new and beautiful to the global conversation, it will spread and our significance will never be doubted. If we are faithful, we may even get a share in that glory. But insofar as we do not, and insofar as we allow our tribalism our desire for comfort, our desire for control to take over, we will wither and pass away and God will choose another instrument to bring His perfect will into history. Can we still offer that unique vision, that unique flavor? Can we rejoice when seeds of it crop up all over the world and say, yes, that's something that's part of what I was talking about. You and I may disagree on 50 million things, but there I really do believe you are you are in accord with something fundamental. Can we then listen and say you and I disagree on 50 million things? Perhaps God needs to teach me one of them. Can we still, by staying true to scripture and true to the spirit of love that dwells between us, rewrite human history? Psalm 27 says, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Exfiltration is a slow process. And for many problems in that we confront, 500 years seems far too long to wait for the global conversation to shift. But take hope, my friends. Because the God of peace is on our side. And though we may mess things up and slow down the process, God's kingdom is coming. Both in the hereafter and in the here and now. And as it comes, as that light spreads across the world, we have been given a wonderful part to play in its spread. As a historical community, a small community with a radical vision centered on Christ.